If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 32. So last week, we concluded the Jacob and Laban saga. Jacob spent 20 years with Laban. He was taken advantage of by Laban. And ultimately, he fled from Laban. And as we saw, he left home without, or he left for home without telling him. He sought to avoid him. Yet when Laban found out that Jacob had left, he pursued Jacob and he confronted him. And while Jacob was approached by Laban with ill intent, the Lord protected Jacob and the controversy ended in peace. Through it all, Jacob had no need to be afraid. He had no need to fear because God told him 20 years prior to, uh, 20 years prior to this, when he was going on his way to see Laban for the first time, God told him that he would be with him, that he would bring him back safely to the promised land. And throughout the Laban years, we saw that God was with Jacob. God was faithful to his promise to be with Jacob, to bless him, and to bring him back safely to the promised land. And so now that the Jacob-Laban saga is complete, Jacob will face another person that he sought to avoid for many years. On his way back to the promised land, he will face, he will have to face his brother Esau. And once again, Jacob has no reason to fear, yet he is, he is fearful, very fearful of his brother. The last time he was in his brother's midst, you recall, his brother was plotting to kill him. So as we come to chapter 22, I'm sorry, chapter 32 and chapter 33, there's a question that is, I would say, looming here for us to answer or for God to answer. Will God protect Esau? I'm sorry, will God protect Jacob from Esau? Will God prevent Esau from harming Jacob? Will he continue to bless him and protect him? We've seen that already. God's been faithful to that promise. Will he continue to be faithful to that promise? So will God keep his promise and protect Jacob from his brother who plotted to kill him after he stole his brother's blessing? Before we go any further, let's go ahead and read Genesis 32, 1 through 21, and then I'll pray. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night 
And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, We come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. We come in the name of Christ because your spirit has done a miraculous work in us, making us into a new creation. We are grateful that the old has passed away. The sins we have committed against you, you no longer hold against us because Jesus Christ died in our place. There's now no more condemnation. We have been counted righteous in Christ. And we've been sealed with the promised Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would guard us against quenching the Spirit. Help us to pray at all times in the Spirit. Help us to walk in the Spirit. And I pray this morning as we look to the Spirit-breathed Word, I pray that our hearts will be inclined to your testimonies. I pray that your Spirit will open our eyes to see wonderful things. That you would unite our hearts to fear your name that we'd be so satisfied with your steadfast love. Help us to not be anxious about things of this world. Give us eyes to see the glorious truths you have in store for us in your word this morning. I pray that we will see and savor the glory of Christ. The very Christ who was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Help us to see and savor that which truly is glorious, as revealed in your holy word. And as we see Christ, I pray that we would put aside our differences, that we would let go of that which is we have allowed to so easily entangle us and that we would look to you, O God. Draw us near to you this morning, I pray. In no other name but Jesus' name, amen. So mentioned earlier that we've come to the end of the Laban saga, the Jacob Laban saga, and now we come to chapters 32 and 33, And the Genesis narrative now returns back to the Jacob and Esau narrative. And to say that Jacob and Esau have a strained relationship would be a great understatement. The two twins essentially came out of the womb at war with one another. They were wrestling with one another. They were at war in the womb and they were at war out of the womb. Jacob tricked and took advantage of Esau on more than one occasion. And the last time that he tricked Esau... You know the story, Esau comforted himself. He comforted, he brought comfort to himself by planning, by plotting to kill his brother. And now we are 20 years later 
And the two brothers, they'll meet again. They're gonna face each other once again. So in chapter 32, we have the buildup to this encounter. Then in chapter 33, we're going to see the encounter between Jacob and Esau. The plan, Lord willing, is to spend two weeks here in chapter 32 as we look at the buildup to this encounter. Today, we'll be in verses one through 21. Next week, we'll look at the rest of the chapter. And then in a couple of weeks from For a couple weeks from now, we'll look at chapter 33, where we see the brothers meet one another, and they meet face to face. So this week, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 21 is Jacob, who is greatly afraid of his brother. I mean, just look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Look in the middle of verse 11. He's praying to God, and he says, please deliver me, for I fear him. He's greatly distressed. He's greatly afraid of his brother. And what do we find him doing? We find him praying to God. Once again, we see Jacob's gradual transformation. He is moving from a man who does whatever he can to get ahead in life, materially speaking, and he's becoming a man who leans upon God through prayer. So I've divided this passage into four parts. It's in your worship guide Page five, you can see the outline just to help you as we think through it. Um, But I've also come up with four questions to help guide us through each section. So in verses one and two, we see the angels of God meeting Jacob as he goes on his way. And the question we will ask is why? Why does God reveal his angels to Jacob? Or another way we could ask it, what is significant? What's the significance of this? What's the significance of God revealing his angels to Jacob? That's the first section. The second section, the second division here is verses three through eight, where we see Jacob's fear of Esau. He sends his messengers to Esau. They come back and tell Jacob that Esau wants to meet him. And as a result, we'll look at it, Jacob is greatly afraid. He's distressed. And because he is afraid, he divides his camp into two camps with the hope that one may survive Esau's raid. And the question that we'll ask is simple, but why is Jacob afraid of Esau? That's the second section. In the third section, we see Jacob's gradual transformation as we've we've been recounting that over and over as we've gone through the Genesis narrative. And here we see in verses 9 through 12, we see Jacob praying to God. He prays God's promises back to him. So while Jacob is afraid, he leans upon the Lord through prayer. And the question that we will ask is, why does Jacob pray? And then our last section will be verses 13 through 21, where we see Jacob's attempt to appease Esau. And the question here is, why does Jacob send gifts to Esau? So just to reiterate the four questions. One, why does God reveal his angels to Jacob? Two, why is Jacob so afraid of Esau? Why does he fear Esau? Three, why does Jacob pray to God? And four, why does Jacob send gifts to God? And these are not trick questions. Um, These are really to help guide us as we think through this passage. So now that you have the plan, let's go ahead and just pick up really in the last verse of chapter 31. So at the end of chapter 31, in verse 55, we see Laban, he arises early in the morning, gives a send-off to everybody, and then the last words we read in chapter 31 are, then Laban departed and returned home. In both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Septuagint, you would find verse 55 here is verse 1 of chapter 32. And I prefer the way the English breaks it down, but I understand the reason for the divide because it really does connect us to what's going on. Laban departs, and now we see Jacob going on his way. So we have this send-off, this ending here at the end of chapter 31 in our English Bibles. Laban departs and returns home. Laban's gone. We don't know what's in store for him. But the two men now go separate ways. And as we see in verse 1 of 32, Jacob goes on his way. So Jacob is now, as he is departing, Laban and Jacob going two separate ways. Laban going north, Jacob essentially going south, but really going westward and south. 
They're about to, they're going two different ways. We don't know what happens to Laban. Laban goes home, but Jacob is about to face perhaps his greatest fear in life. He's about to face his brother. He's about to see his brother. Remember, his brother wanted to kill him, and he's about to face him. But before we read anything about Esau, look at verse 1 again. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. I mean, think about that. He's going on his way. The next thing that's about to happen to him, he's just had this confrontation with Laban, and I don't know about you, but anytime you know, that, that, that you really, I, I hate to use this word, but I can't think of a better word, but we have a spiritual high, so to speak. You have those, those mountaintop moments. You really recognize God's providence in your life. You recognize God's blessings in your life. And then, or maybe it's, you had a really just, the Lord just spoke through you in, a, in an opportunity to share the gospel or, or whatever it might be. And then so often after that, we come crashing down like Elijah. We, we come, come crashing down, Lord, there's nobody. I'm the, I'm the only one. We come crashing down. And think about Jacob. He's just had this high moment, this mountaintop moment where Laban came to pursue him possibly to kill him. God protects him and preserves him. I don't know what's going on in Jacob's mind. We don't know. That's not the point. But before he's about to face an even greater conflict, at least historically in his life, God God reveals his angels to him. The comfort that this is here that regardless of if we feel God or if we feel his blessed presence or if we feel like God is answering his promises or delivering on his promises, he is always there. He's always working. The providence of God doesn't go to sleep. God's providential hand doesn't say, you know what, right now I'm going to do what I said, but now I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna get, I need to take a nap or I need to watch a TV show. God's not like you. He's not like us. Whether we feel his presence or not, God is there. And and as we see, as we're reminded here for Jacob, as he goes on his way, the angels of God met him. And then verse two, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And then he names this place Mahanaim. And so Mahanaim, if you know that word, if you know that name, that city, it's significant in the history of Israel. It will be a city of refuge for the manslayer. Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son, was made king in this city. And then David's men will defeat Absalom near this city. So, what we have here in verses one and two, Jacob is on his way, he's met by God's angels, and then he names this place Mahanaim. Mahanaim will be a significant city in the life of ancient Israel, but why does God reveal his angels to Jacob? What is the significance of this? Well, turn back to chapter 28. I've already alluded a little bit to this, but turn to chapter 28. I want to look at one verse here. So right after Jacob was sent to Laban, he comes to a certain place. He stays the night, and then in verse 12, we read, and he dreamed, this being Jacob, and behold, there was a ladder set up set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So in this dream, Jacob sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder that stretched from heaven to earth. The ladder, figuratively speaking, is the bridge between heaven and earth. And as we see here, the angels of God are constantly going from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven They go at God's bidding to do God's work. Now turn back over here to 32 with that in mind. That was before he met Laban. Now that his relationship with Laban has essentially, at least physically, come to an end, the two men have parted ways, ways, we see once again Jacob have another encounter with the angels of God. When he left 
the promised land, he saw a vision of the angels of God. Now that he's returning to the promised land, he sees another vision of the angels of God. The first time Jacob saw the angels of God was in a dream. This time we don't know if it was a dream or a manifestation similar to that of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings, or, yeah, 2 Kings 6. I don't know if you're familiar with that story or not. One of my favorite Old Testament stories. The Syrians, they surround the city where Elisha is and they're seeking to seize him. Elisha's servant was afraid. He saw all the horses and the chariots that surrounded the city and he asked Elisha, what shall we do? And Elisha says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of this young man. And you know what he saw? He saw the army of God. It was a great multitude, far outnumbering the mighty Syrian army. And here in Genesis 32, Think about that, what we have. We have this picture. Jacob now sees God's ministering angels who are ensuring Jacob's safe travel back to the promised land. As Meredith Klein noted, the angels of God are not always visible, but nonetheless there. The angels of God were revealed to Jacob on his way to Laban, And now he is met again by the angels of God on his way back to the promised land. And this signifies the reality that God who protected Jacob from Laban will most certainly protect Jacob from what is about to come. So the significance of the angels is to provide Jacob with assurance that God will protect him. But before we move on from these two verses, one more thing I want to point out. I want to just point out that when he sees the angels, he says this is God's camp. Back in chapter 28, when Jacob woke up from that dream, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And now he says this is God's camp, and he names the place Mahanaim. The name Mahanaim means two camps. This is a reminder of the heavenly shield that has escorted Jacob and that will continue to escort Jacob So what's the significance of this revelation? Well, comfort and assurance that God is with Jacob and that he will continue to be with Jacob. He protected him from Laban. Surely he will protect him from what is to come. I would say many of us need to be reminded of that very truth. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But God cares for his own. He is with his own. Even if death is the worst that could come, God is still with you and God will bring you through it, whether it be in life or in death. That's the assurance we have as believers. That's the assurance that we have as Alan read from Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation. Even if death comes to you, even if that is, just think about it, that's the worst that could happen. But really, is it that bad? If your greatest enemies were to kill you and God is with you, what do you have to fear? For you will wake up with God in glory. Let this serve as a reminder here that God is with his people. He protects his people, whether it be in life or in death. Let us trust the Lord. That brings us to the next section in this passage where we see Jacob's fear of Esau. After Jacob is met by the angels of God in verse three, we see him here sending messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir. This is in the country of Edom. This is the homeland of Esau and his descendants. How Jacob knew they were already dwelling there, we do not know, but he sends his messengers ahead of him And he tells them what to say. In verses four and five, he instructs them to tell Esau that he's been with Laban until now. That he has gained much wealth and prosperity and that he's seeking to find favor in Esau's sight. And notice in verse four how he refers to Esau. 
Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob. He refers to Esau as his Lord, and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. This is very interesting to think about when we, when we consider Isaac's blessing upon his sons. Back in chapter 27, when Isaac blessed the two boys, he told Jacob that he will be Lord over his brothers. His mother's sons will bow down to him. He told Esau, you shall serve your brother. But Jacob seemingly reverses that blessing here. He refers now to Esau as Lord and to himself as servant. You can really see what he's doing. I mean, he's trying to appease his brother. He knows his brother's angry with him. Therefore, he's presenting himself to Esau as one who is humble, as one who is not striving to be first as he was before. So he tells Esau, or he says, refer to Esau as my Lord and I'm your servant. Also tell him that I've been with Laban until now. That's where I've been and I've gained much wealth. He's not here to cheat Esau out of anything. In fact, he will offer much of his wealth to Esau. He's not here to take advantage of Esau. He's here to find favor in Esau's side. But notice, Jacob doesn't go to deliver this message. He sends his servants. Why? Because he fears Esau. And why does he fear Esau? The last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. And it wasn't just brothers being brothers and one of them just losing control and saying something he shouldn't have said. Esau really wanted to kill him. And if you recall, whenever Jacob was sent away, Rebekah was supposed to send for him and tell him whenever Esau's wrath subsided. Remember that. She said, whenever Esau's wrath turns away from you, I will send for you. As far as we know, that never happened. Was this because Rebekah died? Or did Rebekah lack the confirmation that Esau's wrath had turned away from Jacob? Well, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jacob is about to cross through Esau's land, and he's greatly afraid of him. He sends men before him because he's unsure of what Esau might do to him. He's been hiding out essentially for 20 years and he's about to cross paths with Esau and to make matters worse, look, when the messengers returned, look at verse six, they returned to Jacob and said, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Not a big deal until you read there are 400 men with him. Here's your brother. He's got an army with him. He's coming to meet you. Yeah, he hears you're coming. He's coming to meet you. And then look at Jacob's response, verse seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. His brother's coming. He's got an army of men with him. He is greatly afraid and distressed. And look, he does, he, he does something here. He divides the people who are with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps. So he divides everybody into two camps if, with Esau coming. And here's his reason in verse eight. If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So if Esau comes with his raiding party, maybe one of the camps will escape and survive. Just two observations here. One, we're reminded of Jacob's prosperity. I mean, he has enough wealth to divide his people and his, well, and his, his, his possessions into two camps. God has greatly prospered Jacob. But second, and just getting back more to the point, this reveals Jacob's fear of Esau. He's fearful that Esau is coming to wipe him out. So he's going to do all that he can to at least save some of his people. And that brings us back to the question, why does Jacob fear Esau? Well, he thinks Esau's planning to kill him. Down in verse 11, we see in his prayer, I mean, he's, he thinks that Esau's coming. At the very end of verse 11, you can see that he may attack me and the mothers with the children. He thinks that Esau's gonna come and just ransack and wipe out everybody. He fears Esau because he thinks Esau still wants to kill him. In one sense, Jacob brought this upon himself. No, he's not responsible for Esau's anger. 
That's on Esau. But Jacob did provide the circumstances for, to, to fuel what was already residing in Esau's heart. And now Jacob is about to face a situation that is out of his control. He's powerless against Esau and the 400 men that are with him. I mean, what's he going to do? Jacob's not a warrior. I mean, he's a shepherd. And you might be thinking, well, what about David? He was a shepherd. David's unique. Jacob's a shepherd. Esau's a man of the sword. And here Esau comes with a great army, and Jacob's powerless to stop him. He can't drive his family and possessions fast enough to flee from Esau's presence. Essentially, he's a sitting duck, and he knows it. But what we'll see in the next section really shows us Jacob's gradual transformation. Yes, we see him dividing his people into two camps to preserve his people, but then we see in verses 9 through 12, God goes to the Lord in prayer. And so the question we'll ask, why does Jacob pray to God? Well, to answer this, let's just dive in. In verse 9, Jacob begins by addressing God as the God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac. At first glance, this might look like Jacob's referring to their God, but that's not the case. Really, this is covenantal language. God has entered into a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and here he's praying to the covenantal God and remembering that covenantal relationship. As such, Jacob will appeal to God's command and to God's promises. We see in verse 9, God told him to return to your country. Remember, he's saying, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred. That was the command. And he also appeals to the promise, so that I may do you good. So God told him to return, and God told him, I will be with you. And so... Jacob here is interpreting the words that God had told him, I will be with you, as I will do you good. Because he understands God's blessed presence. That being the cause of his prosperity, that being the cause of his protection. God protected him from Laban, that he might return home. And he's praying that God will continue to protect him. The covenant promises have yet to be fulfilled. As we know, the Messiah has not yet been born. Christ Jesus has not yet been born from among Jacob's offspring, the one who will bless the nations whom God promised to bring forth through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. According to the flesh, he has not been born. So God will surely keep his word. Surely he will continue to bless Jacob that Jacob's offspring might be a blessing to the nations. So Jacob reminds God of his promises here in verse 9. And we see him doing that again in verse 12. I mean, he, he says here, he's, But you said, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Remember, God promised to multiply Jacob's offspring, not just give him 12 kids. He promised to give him numerous offsprings that, that you couldn't even count, so to speak. So Jacob here is praying God's promises back to him. But why? If God's promised, why would he pray that back to him? Does God need to be reminded of his promises? Surely not. God doesn't forget. So if God doesn't need to be reminded of his promises, why ought we pray God's promises back to him? We see this in scripture regularly. Why ought we to pray God's promises back to him? Well, yesterday was our May seminar. Topic was prayer. One of my assignments was to look at Puritan thoughts on prayer. And during that session, we looked at the teachings of John Preston, who preached five sermons from 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, pray without ceasing. And in one of these sermons, he addressed several objections to prayer. And one of his objections was this. Why pray for that which God has already promised to bring to pass? Jacob here is praying for that which God has already promised to do. Why? Why should we pray this way? Well, Preston initially answers this question. He provides examples from Scripture. He looks at men like Elijah, David, Daniel, 
who all pray God's promises back to him. Furthermore, he refers to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, whose example, he says, is without exception. He had all the promises sure to him, yet he prayed, yes, he spent whole nights in prayer. But Preston doesn't just conclude with examples. He goes on to teach us how praying God's promises back to him leads to worship. Because as we're praying God's promises back to him, we're acknowledging God in all of his attributes. When we pray, think about it. We're acknowledging that God has the ability to hear our prayer, along with the ability to know the secrets of our heart. When you pray to God, you are, and I mentioned this yesterday, you don't have to call God up and say, or call his secretary and say, hey, can I schedule an appointment at two o'clock? That sounds foolish because God is everywhere. Now you might need to schedule times for you to pray, but God needs no appointment. He is everywhere. I mean, think about how amazing that is that all of us here, we could go our separate way, we could all pray at the same time and God hears every one of our prayers. And he hears our prayers whether we speak them audibly or not. He knows the secrets of our heart. What kind of God is this? If two people were talking to me, I can't decipher. I mean, I, I just sounds like jargon. God hears all of us, all of our prayers. We also acknowledge his almighty power when we pray for God to rescue us from that which is out of our control. What's happening here to Jacob, 400 men with his brother who hates him coming out of his control. Oh God, please deliver me. He's acknowledging God's almighty power to deliver him. We also acknowledge God's mercy and his goodness when we ask him to rescue us as he has promised. We acknowledge that he is a merciful God, that he is a good God who does not go back on his word. We acknowledge his faithfulness as well. As Preston declared, when I go and seek him, all the attributes of God are acknowledged in prayer. So this very praying to God is a worshiping of him because it acknowledges his attributes and his relation to us and ours to him. Just think about that. When we pray to God, it leads to worship because we acknowledge God as he is. It also opens our hearts to be thankful to God as he answers our prayers We are thankful. Oh God, thank you because we see that it comes from him. We know it comes from him, but when we're praying to God, we see and we're reminded that it comes from him. And we pray back his promises because this is one of God's ordained means to bring his will to pass. Can't tell you why God is ordained to bring his will to pass through our prayers but he has. Preston noted the promises of God are not, I'm sorry, the promises of God are to be understood with this secret condition annexed. I will do such and such a thing for you if you pray. Yesterday, we mentioned James 4 too. You have not because you ask not. Prayer is an expression of our deep sense of dependence upon God. Apart from God, We have nothing. And we acknowledge this very reality through our prayers. And that comes through in Jacob's prayer. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. And look at Jacob. Look at the transformation that's taking place in Jacob. He acknowledges that he was practically an empty-handed man whenever he came to Laban. All he had was his shepherd's staff. And now he has an abundance. I mean, he has two camps. And while Jacob attributes his prosperity to God, just look again at the beginning of verse 10. I am not worthy 
He expresses that he's unworthy of all the good that God has done to him. He is unworthy of God's covenant love, of the steadfast love, the faithfulness that God has shown him. He is not worthy of God's faithfulness, and he's correct. He's not worthy. Yet God has shown great love to Jacob. God has shown and poured out much grace upon Jacob. He's bestowed much grace upon the one who deceived and tricked others to gain an advantage in life. And now we see this man praying in such a way that expresses he is not worthy of God's great love for him. And that's what makes God's love so great. When we read passages like Ephesians 5, and we see that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we must not think that Christ loved the church because we are lovely. In fact, Ephesians 5 teaches us the very opposite. He loved the church that he might sanctify us, that he might cleanse us, that he might purify us. When we read passages like Galatians 2.20, that the Son of God loved us and gave himself up for us, we must never think that we were worthy of such love. Like Jacob, we're not worthy. We're not worthy of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Yet in Christ, we are partakers of God's covenantal love for his people. Therefore, we ought to be the most thankful people, the most grateful people because of God's covenantal love for us. And because of God's covenantal love, Jacob goes to God because God is his God. And the same goes for you. God is your God. Like Jacob, you can pray. We see him here. He prays to God, deliver me. Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. Why? Because I fear him. He is fearful of Esau. He is fearful that Esau is going to come into his camp, attack Jacob, attack the mothers and their children. And that brings us back to the question. Why does Jacob pray to God? Well, first of all, we can say because he's afraid of Esau. But that doesn't go far enough. He prays for God to deliver him because he's utterly dependent upon God. And two, because God has brought him into a covenant relationship with him. God is his God, therefore he can pray to God. Remember, Scripture teaches us God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. Not because he doesn't have ears to hear, but because he turns his face away from the wicked. But as we read in Scripture, he does hear the prayers of the righteous. And the righteous are those who walk by faith in the promises of God, namely in the promise of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jacob can go to God in prayer because he belongs to God. And as a child of God, it is a fitting expression of his absolute dependency upon the Lord. This situation is out of his control. He's helpless. To whom else could he turn? So he prays to God for rescue. So far, we've seen Jacob's fear of Esau followed by his prayer to God. And we've also seen God's presence with him, with these angels. Jacob had no need to fear. God has been with him. He was, he's been with him, and he will be with him. Yet he was afraid of his brother. As such, he took that to God in prayer, and he did not try to impress God. He prayed God's promises back to him, and he told him he's fearful of his brother. It's such a proper response for a man of God. And with that, we now come to this final section where we see Jacob sending a gift to Esau. And the question we'll ask here is, why does he send this gift to his brother? Is he generous, or is he seeking to appease his brother's wrath? When verse 13, we see, he stayed the night there, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Verses 14 and 15, we see that this is a generous gift. It's at least 550 animals from his flock. So it's not like he's given Esau just the leftovers. 
He's not just giving livestock he doesn't want. This is a generous gift. It goes far above and beyond. You know, we don't know the count of Jacob's livestock. All we know is that he's prospered greatly. And this is a substantial gift that he's given to Esau. This is a gift fitting for kings. And then we see how he presents this gift in verses 16 through 20. He presents this gift in waves. One servant will show up with his gift, followed by the next, followed by the next. Each servant would refer to Esau as Lord Esau, and he would tell him that this present was from your servant, Jacob. You know, many of you have heard me refer to my days working at the catering company. Um, working there afforded me opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, some good, some not so good. Um, but one time I, I worked a wedding for an extremely wealthy Persian family. Um, the bride's parents hosted the wedding in their house. Um, their house wasn't that big. It just could fit about 300 people in the living room. Um, <laughs> that's probably, there's probably not even 300 people here, so you can just imagine. Um, but I bring this to your attention because of, and I say it was a Persian wedding because I'd never seen this before. I, I finally realized why we talk about a wedding shower. They showered the bride with gifts. After the wedding, the bride sat down, and then person after person, wave after wave came up, and they placed diamond necklaces upon her. I've never seen so much bling or shiny things in my life. Anyways, each person brought gift after gift to the point where she actually literally couldn't stand up. She was so weighted down. But she was overwhelmed by the gifts she received. After person, after person would come with gift after gift, showering her with gift after gift. And in a similar way, that's what's taking place here with Esau. Jacob sends wave after wave. He doesn't just send it all in one lump sum. He sends wave after wave of gifts. And why is he doing this? Well, verse 20. Look in the middle here. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. He's seeking to appease his brother. He thought to himself that I may appease him and then I may see his face. Essentially, he's trying to buy his brother's favor. He's hoping that these gifts will satisfy his brother's anger, that he might be reconciled to his brother, that he might be accepted by his brother. I mean, it's possible that Jacob is thinking, well, I stole his inheritance, so maybe I'll just pay him back and then he'll accept me. Perhaps then his anger will be turned away from me. We don't know the motive behind why he's doing what he's doing, but here's the problem with Jacob's logic. It is God who will protect Jacob from Esau. It is God, not the gifts, who will bring reconciliation among these brothers. Money and gifts cannot quench someone's wrath, for money does not satisfy. So to answer our final question, is this a generous gift or an attempt to appease Esau? It's most certainly the latter. Jacob is not giving this gift out of the generosity of his heart, but in an attempt to satisfy his brother's anger. And it's right here that we're reminded of a very integral gospel truth. God's wrath will not and cannot be satisfied by gifts. First of all, we learn from Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We learn later on in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, no, not one. Therefore, the wrath of God abides over all men. For all are unrighteous. And there is nothing you can do to turn away God's wrath from you. Just think about it. There's nothing you can give God to turn away his wrath. I mean, just think about it. What can you offer God that does not already belong to him? I mean, let's say your neighbor was angry with you. Would you go to your, ang to your neighbor, to your angry neighbor and say, hey, I'm gonna give you your house back to you to, to, to please you? That sounds foolish, doesn't it? Because yeah, the house isn't yours to give. Why do we do this with God? Why do we think that we can give God something that isn't already his? 
There isn't one thing that you can give God that you don't already owe to him. There's not one thing you can give God that isn't already his. How could you satisfy God with anything? That's why salvation is all of grace. It can't be bought. It's not, you, it can't be bought. It's not that you can't afford it. It's that it can't be bought. It's not for sale. It's free. Think about this in light of the Jacob and Esau narrative. If Jacob is trying to give back what he stole, then he really isn't giving back anything to Esau that Esau wouldn't think is rightly his in the first place. Jacob can't appease his brother's wrath. And that's implied all throughout this narrative. Jacob's gifts can't appease his wrath. In, in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 33, we'll see that Esau doesn't want his gifts anyways. He has enough. So as we connect the events in this passage with what is to come in chapter 33, we know that it's God who protects Jacob from Esau. These gifts cannot and will not appease Esau's anger, just as our gifts cannot and will not satisfy God's wrath against us. God alone can satisfy his wrath against us. Just as God reconciled Jacob to Esau, it is God who reconciles us to himself. And he does this through the blessed offspring of Jacob. Christ Jesus absorbed God's wrath on behalf of his own. And now we, who were formerly, we were formerly enemies of God. We've now been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So as returning to our passage, it concludes in verse 21. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. He'll have to wait to see the result. He'll have to wait to meet Esau, but before he will, we'll see another encounter with God. So as we come to the end of our passage, we have Jacob who is fearful of his brother. He sought to appease his brother's wrath and he prayed to God for rescue. And while Jacob had no reason to be fearful for God is with him, he still lived in fear. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you are currently living in fear of others. Maybe you are currently living in fear of that which is out of your control. But as we're reminded here, we have God's ear. We can go to the very God who created the heavens and the earth and we can cast our anxieties upon him for he cares for us. But we must not stop there. Yes, it is good and right to pray to God when we are anxious or when we are fearful. But if I leave you by just telling you how to manage your daily fears, then I've done you a true disservice. Therefore, I must address your fears in light of the one whom you must fear. The reason you're anxious and afraid is simple. You don't fear God as you ought. You don't have a proper fear of the holy God. I mean, just think about it. He is a holy God, and the only one who can satisfy the wrath of God is the holy God himself. If the Father sent his Son to die for sin, just think about what this God can do to you. That's why Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When you fear man or you fear the things of this world, it's because you don't fear God as you ought to. It's because you have an improper view of God. It's because you have an improper view of Christ. In Revelation 6, the kings and the slaves alike, everyone in between, they were so fearful of the lamb that they cried out to the mountains and the rocks and they said, fall on us. Hide us from his face who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The 
the great ones and the lesser ones all were crying out to the mountains, to the caves, fall on us, please hide us from his wrath because who can stand? Well, the answer is this, the lamb. He's the one who can stand. He alone can stand. Therefore, all who are found in him will stand on that great day of wrath. Christ Jesus is the conquering lamb. And it's in him that you will find refuge. You will find refuge in him from him. And you will not be put to shame. But if you are not in him, I pray that you would adopt the same posture. I pray that God would work in your heart and give you the spirit of Jacob who says, I am not worthy. I pray that God would break your heart and that you would go to God as one who, I'm not worthy, O oh God. Only he is worthy. And I pray that God would open your eyes to that glory to see the worth of Christ. For he alone can save. He alone is the conqueror of our fears because he cares for us. Right after commanding his disciples to fear God, Jesus said this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. There's no need to live in fear if you're a child of God. There's nothing in life or in death that can separate you from his love. There's nothing that can separate you from his blessed presence. And while I wish I could say that the Christian always lives triumphantly, always lives as a conqueror, it is true that the child of God will oftentimes fear man. And that's why we need to be reminded, just like Elisha's servant, we need to be reminded that the one who is with us is infinitely greater than those who stand against us. We need to be reminded of God's blessed presence as Jacob was reminded here in Genesis 32. So if I just gave you some tips for how to manage your fear, I'd be selling you short. For this reason, along with Isaiah, I tell you this, fear not and behold your God. And as the eyes of your hearts are open to God's glory, then you will be able to cry out along with Jacob. Then you will be able to truly say, I am unworthy, O God. And as you see your undeserving state in light of his infinite worth, you can truly say your will be done and you can mean it. So often we say your will be done as long as I'm comfortable. Your will be done as long as I'm not hurt or harmed. But no, as we see God as he rightly is, we can truly say your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we can mean it. As we behold the glory of Christ, we can truly say in life or in death, I will fear the Lord alone. So my prayer for you who are fearful of man, is that God would open your eyes to his greatness. And for those of you who are not currently living in fear of man or in fear of that which is out of your control, I pray that God will continue to open your eyes to the majesty and glory of Christ. That you would be reminded over and over that he alone absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of the people of God. And as you look to him, I pray that you would continue to walk in his ways. You will continue to walk in the hope that is in him. Stay the course. Keep your eyes fixed upon God through Jesus Christ. Remember, he is your helper. Don't hide from him. Hide in him. Because in him we can endure no matter what the world might bring our way. Look to the eternal God. Hope in him. Trust in him and fear not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grateful for your word. We're reminded of your greatness and of your blessed presence with us.
So I pray that we would not be those who live in fear. We would not be cowardly. Not that we would have a false sense of arrogance, but that we would run to you and cling to you, living in the hope that we have in you. Help us to see your glory. Help us to know that when we fear, it's because we don't see you. Help us to rid ourselves of the sin which so easily besets us. Help us to see the glory of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name.